would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude? I should actually say the letter of Jude, or maybe the chapter of Jude. It's just one chapter. You might be going, where's Jude? Well, go to the end, go to Revelation, and it's the book right before. Uh, we are taking a break this summer from our series in Exodus, and I'm going to look at the book of Jude all in one swipe today. And I do want to point out that during the week, as we were driving from the Chicago area to St. Louis, I listened to Matt's sermon. And I just want to say publicly, Matt, you're not in the minor leagues anymore, man. You're part of the starting rotation. So praise God for elders who can faithfully teach and preach God's word. So let's give our attention now to the letter of Jude. Begin in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. 
It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for a letter like this, for the reminder that it contains, and the call, the calls that are there for us, your people. Oh God, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us, make us more like Jesus, equip us to love and to serve. Father, help your people. May the preaching of your word be a blessing unto them. And would you help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Megan and I are getting ready to celebrate 19 years of marriage. I do know when it is, but it's sometime soon. Uh, While we have much in common, if you know us, you know that to be true, we certainly have our differences, and if you know us, you know that to be true as well. But one of the ways that you can see our differences most clearly is in the type of alarm that we use to wake ourselves up in the morning. Megan's alarm is very gentle. It has a nice, soothing ring to it. It's clear, and it just gently nudges her to wake up and get out of bed. My alarm, on the other hand, is maybe a bit more like me. It's loud. It's obnoxious. It's like an air raid siren, right? Going off, stirring the troops to get up and get ready for battle. I like my alarm. She may not like it. It usually goes off before hers. They may be different, but each one manages to do exactly what an alarm is meant to do. Get you out of bed. Maybe me sooner, maybe her eventually, but it gets us out of bed. Throughout the New Testament, we see repeated warnings, repeated alarms regarding what? False teachers. False teachers who are seeking to influence. False teachers who are seeking to destroy the doctrinal integrity and the moral foundation of the church. And here in this small letter, in the book of Jude, Jude is the, uh, he says he's the brother of James. That makes Jude the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Jude is a well-known leader in the church. Jude is writing. He's writing with a clear and rousing call to the church. He's saying, wake up, stand up, defend the church against the grievous onslaught of false teaching that has infiltrated the ranks. Through this letter of Jude, God is sounding the alarm through him. God is sounding the alarm. He's calling the church to contend, to contend. 
He's calling the church to consider, to think, to consider. And he's calling the church to commit, to commit ourselves to our calling and our ministry. If you're taking notes this morning, that will be our three points. To contend for the faith, to consider the nature of false teachers and what they teach, and to commit ourselves to our calling and ministry as Christians. So let's start with that first point, Jude's call for the church to contend for the faith. To frame his call to contend, you'll notice in verse 1, right away, Jude uses three descriptors to describe Christ's church. He uses a central, or you might say a primary description, and it's followed by two others that further define the primary one. So what's the primary one? The primary or central attribute assigned to us, to the church, is that we are called. We are the called. This means that we are effectually and irrevocably, we've been set apart by the Father. We've been chosen by God the Father for salvation in Jesus Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. But not only are we the called, he goes on to say that we are also beloved. We are the loved ones in the Father. These words remind me of those times which have become less frequent when my children will run to me to get a hug. And most of the time it's like, oh, hug, okay, they hug, they're they're off to do whatever. Parents will know this. Sometimes they come to give you a hug and they don't let go. And maybe you get used to just going, oh, wait, what? And you just hold them in that embrace. That's a sweet moment. If I'm in my right mind, I hold on as long as I can. And so it is. So it is that way with the called who are beloved in God the Father. They're not only loved by God because he's set them apart for himself, called them his children, but they're loved in God. And what does that mean? It means that his love is not a a temporary display of affection. His love is an ongoing, overflowing, always abiding, deep, earnest, and unconditional love for those whom he has called. His children. I'll remind you right up front by way of application that the great privilege we have as Christians is we get to remain in that love. We get to abide in that love. The called of God are also kept. Jews says they are kept for Jesus Christ. This means that God, who's the actor here, God keeps them. God guards them so that they will always belong to Jesus. God will keep them. He will keep us so that we remain loyal to Jesus as our king and ruler, even to the end of the age. This reminds God's church that she is precious to him. You are precious to God. For those who are the called, those who are beloved in the Father and kept for Jesus Christ can be sure of what Jude says next in verse 2, what he prays is that God's great peace and mercy and love would be multiplied upon them beyond measure. So there's no doubt about the audience 
There's no doubt about who receives this letter, including us. The church is precious to God. And as you continue, you see that there's even less doubt that what the church is being called to consider is also precious to God. For upon hearing the situation, Jude tells us upon hearing of the situation with this group of Christians, with this church to whom he's writing, he has a sudden change of plans. He has a change of plans where he might have written a letter that we're more familiar with seeing, a letter like maybe he had Paul wrote to the Romans or to the Ephesians. Instead, Jude is like a commanding officer and he's ordering his troops. He changes course there in verse three and he issues what he says in his own words, a call to contend, a call to fight. And what are they to fight for? For what are they to contend? What does he call it? Look, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In verse 20, he mentions it again. But this time he calls it the most holy faith. So it's the once and for all delivered faith, or handed down faith. And it's the most holy faith. Well, what faith is he referring? To what faith is he referring? He's referring to the truth of God. The truth of God that has been revealed through the prophets of old and the apostles of new and chiefly through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The faith is the summation of Christian knowledge that's been revealed through the scriptures and attested to by the New Testament eyewitnesses regarding how mankind is to live for Christ, how mankind is to be saved. Today, what does it mean for us? We have all kinds of summations. We have confessions. That's true. But ultimately, for us, we can point to this right here. We can point to the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. The Bible contains the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude had a lot of this Bible in his time. We have the fullness today preserved by God's providence and grace for us. The scriptures are the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. What do they reveal to us? Central, undeniable truth about God. About God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and his redemptive plan for his people through all times. His plan to redeem his church. You see, Jude here is calling the church in his day He's calling us to hold fast and to fight for the faith, to fight for the faith, to contend for the faith, to take it up, believe it, to fight for it, to stand on it, to not compromise. But even the talk of that Even the thought of there being contention implies that there's an adversary, that there's someone with whom we are to contend. So who then is Jude speaking about? And that brings us to our second point this morning. It's the call to consider. It's the call to consider the the nature of false teachers and their teaching. You can see it again. Look with me there in verse 4. He calls them certain people. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Certain people. People, it appears that these 
certain people have secretly crept in. They're like spies, I guess, right? They've come in in a clandestine way and they've infiltrated this group of Christians. And clearly as we go through, we see that these are people who teach by word and deed an alternative version of the Christian faith. Apparently, they were not part originally of the church, but they've come in from the outside. They've crept in, implies they came in from the outside, probably as was very common in this day, in Jude's day, presenting themselves as traveling Christian teachers or prophets. As you read the New Testament letters, you see this happens a lot. Teachers and preachers traveling around, coming in and teaching. So their appearance is not secret. It's clear these are people that we've welcomed into our midst. Their presence isn't a secret, but their intentions were. The way they originally presented themselves and their original behavior likely didn't alert the church to the reality that they had an unacceptable alternative view of the faith. So think about this. Jude is a whistleblower. Jude is writing back to the church and saying, hey, you know, I was going to write to you and, and remind you of all the warm and fuzzy things, but I heard that this was happening, and I want to call them out. I want to unmask these people, and I want to unmask their true intentions. So notice what he does in verse 5 and following. He goes on, he makes four assertions. Excuse me, in verse 4 following, he makes four assertions. First, he says that they were long ago destined for this condemnation. What he's saying is that these false teachers, by their behavior, they demonstrate that they are the opposite by their behavior, by their life. They are not of those who are the called. Instead, they're reprobates. And he says they're designated for eternal condemnation. Second, he says they're ungodly people. These are people who are in open moral rebellion against God. I know what you're thinking already. Oh, why did they let this happen in their midst? The third and fourth charges are interconnected. Jude says that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Licentiousness, right? God's grace lets me do whatever I want. And they deny, the second, the fourth, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They don't bow the knee to Jesus. They don't submit to his word, his authority. Here you see the direct link to these people's moral and theological deficiencies. It appears, and we're going to see this clearly in a minute, it appears that they were teaching much what we see in other letters in the New Testament. They were teaching that God's grace towards his people is so rich and so full that guess what? It doesn't matter how you live. God's grace is so rich and full that it just doesn't matter how you live. Where did such an egregious error come from? Evidently, from that central theological premise that they had denied and that many who claim the name of Jesus deny today, and that is that Christ is Lord. And what he says, we obey. Christ is made clear for us in his word. We follow it. They're denying that. You know, you've heard it said that the best way to discern what someone believes is to what? Watch how they live. With their lips, they may confess Jesus is Lord, but if their very way of life denies that fact, 
what do we do? We say, your confession is false. That's heavy stuff. Because there's not a person in this room, any of us, who don't struggle with that. Do you not struggle to live for Christ? Do you not struggle to obey? Are you a sinner? Are you redeemed by the blood of the lamb but still remain in sin? I know I do. We all fail. But the good news here is that though we fail, Christians who sin repent. They confess their sins, and as we've done already this morning, and we repent, and we are restored and renewed. And as you look back on a life that's going to have many peaks and valleys, it all coalesces into one great testimony. That person clearly relied on the Lord Jesus and did not deny his lordship. For these people, it must be pretty out there. They're saying one thing, but they're teaching and living a completely different. So to aid in his call to consider the nature of these false teachers and their teaching, Jude goes on here in this very long passage from 5 through 16 to justify from Scripture and, and you may have noticed this, you may be like, when did that happen? He's also pulling from other popular Jewish literature of the day. So he's pulling from scripture and from Jewish literature of the day. He's using them as illustrations, right? To show just how severe God's judgment against these false teachers will be. Jude wants the church to take the threat of false teachers seriously. He wants the church to be discerning of the words that they're spoken. He wants the church to watch them, to watch those who claim to have authority to teach. He wants the church to not forsake the truth of the faith for lies. So he uses what's actually a very popular form of preaching in the Jewish tradition called a midrash. Maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, the form he uses here is textbook midrash type sermon. Uh, he lays out six examples from history past. He lays out six examples that prove judgment is indeed coming upon these false teachers. He then goes on and throughout it he gives two, uh, excuse me, he gives two examples to follow, good examples. So here's the negative ones. Here's the good examples to follow in light of the judgment and one robust application. So it's like a seven-point sermon, Right? He gives them these because he wants to protect the people of God. He wants to preserve the true faith, which he's called them to contend. Now, I recognize we don't have time to cover all of this in detail this morning. It's a sermon in and of itself, a seven-point sermon even, in and of itself. But I'm going to summarize it for you briefly this way. If you're lost, we're still in point two, okay? So there's three specific charges. Listen, there's three charges that he's levying against these false teachers, the first is apostasy. The second is autonomy. And the third is immorality. He's charging them with apostasy, autonomy, and immorality. So to explain the charge of apostasy, apostasy is the abandoning of the true faith in God. 
Okay, it's turning away and abandoning faith. Jude first points to the Israelites. We've been talking a lot about this. Uh, the Israelites who were rescued from bondage out of the land of Egypt. Uh, as you continue the Exodus story and even look in numbers and other places, you see that a whole generation ends up rejecting God. God had saved them. God had spoken his word to them. God had even settled among them in their midst, and yet they did not believe God's word. Rather, they were faithless again and again and again. He uses that as an example. Later in verse 11, he points to Cain to further explain the charge of apostasy. While it's true that Cain is indeed the Bible's first murderer, Cain's way is more than the way of violence. If you know that, passage, you know that God had taught Cain what was and what was an acceptable behavior. He actually warned Cain of sin's desire. It's crouching. It's there to devour you. He warned him of the disastrous result. But what did Cain do? He rejected God's word. He rejected God's word. And he killed Abel because ultimately, yes, he was a sinner full of violence, but ultimately he apostatized. He didn't believe that God's word was true. I went against God's word. That's what Jude uses here to explain this charge. The next charge, autonomy. What's autonomy? It's the desire to be independent, right? Fiercely independent, so much so that I want to be independent from God. God has no authority. Jude, in verse 6, points to the rebellious angels to show the breadth and depth of God's judgment. These angels failed to show proper respect for God's created boundaries. They rejected the authority of God. They wanted to be by themselves. Think of Satan himself. And what was their punishment? Jude reminds us what Peter also reminds us. In 2 Peter, they're being kept in eternal chains until the judgment of the great day. You see that in Revelation as well. Later in verse 11, Jude mentions Korah's rebellion, thus further explaining this autonomy uh, if we had time, we would go read Numbers 16 together. We learned that Korah hated the fact that Levites could hold a place of authority over God's people. Oh, why can't I? Why can't we? Who put them in charge? I, I want to be in charge. So Korah and his followers rage and jealousy and what becomes of them. You can go to Numbers 16 and read. They were swallowed alive into the earth's grip of gloomy darkness. That final charge is immorality or more specifically, sexual perversion and uncleanness that is forbidden by God's law. I won't go into too much detail because there are little ears here, but in verse 7, Jude points to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's clear what he's referring to there. Later in verse 11, he refers to Balaam. You may remember about Balaam. He eventually turns against Israel and advised God's people to engage in immoral behavior with foreign women particularly the foreign women of Midian. And if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and you know the story of Balaam, what happened to them? They were destroyed from the land of the living. So there's six examples that he gives, six examples, and they show us the severity of God's judgment. And then he goes on to give two positive examples, right? Because that's what preachers do, right? You give positive examples, now, these examples sound strange to us, right? Because not many of you are walking around reading First Enoch in the Testament of Moses, are you? Now, Judah's not calling these biblical. He's using them as the popular literature that they were, just as Paul used popular literature when he would talk to people. He appeals to these books 
and he uses them, because they're familiar with them. To us, they're not as familiar. He uses them as contemporary examples, like we might use an example about alarm clocks or a sports figure. Uh, He appeals to these examples, and he says, hey, Michael the archangel stands in contrast to the people of Israel and in contrast to those angels who rebelled because he acknowledges God's authority. He doesn't presume that it's okay to rebel in even the slightest manner. Likewise, he says, Enoch stands in contrast to Cain and Balaam and Korah. Now, we know about Enoch. We know a little bit, right? Genesis 5 tells us that Enoch walked faithfully with God and he was no more. He was received uh, into heaven, dwelling with God forevermore. There's two positive examples. The reverse, then, is true of those who blaspheme God, for they will indeed receive a strict judgment. They won't be commended for giving it their best effort. Of course, as you read, you see that it's a severe, unbearable, utterly destructive judgment. So Jude here compares the false teachers within the churches to contend with those examples by again highlighting apostasy, autonomy, and immorality. And look at verse eight. Jude says that they rely on their dreams, not the faith once and for all handed to the saints. They rely on their dreams. They justify what they are teaching based on some sort of new revelation That shows their apostasy. They're turning away from the true faith. Further, it says they defile the flesh. That is, they've turned to all forms of sensuality, all manners of sexual immorality. And thus, it just furthers their errant teaching. And lastly, they reject authority, likely rejecting any notion of accountability to any church leader that dares to call them out for their teaching and behavior, which is common for false teachers. So after calling the church to consider, to really think about these false teachers, Jude then unleashes an onslaught of descriptive phrases for them. Did you catch this? They're hidden blemishes. They're waterless clouds, fruitless, twice dead, uprooted trees. They're wild waves casting a foam of shame. They're wandering stars. They're grumblers, malcontents, Lustful, loudmouth boasters, manipulators for gain. Well, he doesn't hold anything back, does he? It's not very flattering to be called those things. No. Judah's crying out, why do you tolerate these kind of people in your midst? And why do some of you even submit yourself to their teaching? Get rid of them. Get them out. And that call is not just for them, it's for us as well, for the church today. Apostasy, autonomy, immorality have continued from that day forward to creep into the church. Look around today, and some of these things have a literal stronghold on what is called Christianity. You can hear it on the radio, you can see it on television, hear it in various sermons, it takes place and it is grievous. Jude, like the apostles before him, like the continued faithful heralds of God's word today, call upon the church to have a much higher standard. We're not called to sit under the teaching of waterless clouds and fruitless, twice-dead, uprooted trees. 
think, consider what you are listening to. What are we called to do? To bow the knee to King Jesus, to submit ourselves to him, and to sit under the teaching and preaching and leading of those who would also bow the knee to Jesus and I'll hold up his word, the faith once and for all handed to the saints. So Judas called us to contend. He's called us to consider. And Jude now puts his pen to the parchment to record his final call, a call to commitment. Summoning in verses 17 through 19, what had become a central pillar of the teaching of the New Testament apostles, and thus should be a, a constant pillar of teaching today, Jude calls on the believers to remember their predictions. He's one of contemporaries of Jude, and he's saying, listen, they're apostles of the Lord Jesus, authority given to them by him, listen to their predictions, and what had they predicted? Over and over again, if you're familiar with New Testament letters, they say there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. There will be false teachers. Jesus himself even said there will be wolves in sheep's clothing who will creep in among you. Be aware. And then you go, how are we to respond? What are we to do? You've told us there will be false teachers. Jude says, commit to your Christian calling. Verses 20 and 21. He uses a familiar word in this letter, the word keep. And Jude calls on his readers, those with ears to hear, and he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Here he's summoning the called. He's summoning the kept to keep themselves in God's love. We can't help but hear the echo of Jesus' words in John 15, 9. Remember, he said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in me. Abide in my love. That's a great and wonderful calling. To hear someone tell us, hey, keep yourself in the love of God. Abide in the love of God. There's no more safer, no more blessed, no more spiritually rich place for you to inhabit than there in Christ, in the love of God. And you go, well, what does that mean? When I was young, my family would often go and visit Sears. You young people may remember Sears as a store, but we used to visit Sears in the local mall and we would shop for clothes. Yeah, we bought clothes there and all kinds of household goods. And I always remember that if we went as a family, the moment we got there, my dad always said the exact same thing. If you need me, I'll be in the tool section, right? If you need me, I'll be over there in the tools. And there my dad would stay the entire time, no matter how long it took, and it was funny to watch him as I got older. He would just like pick up a tool and look at it. And, you know, he was like he was dreaming of the very next thing he was going to do with this tool. Let me ask you this. How much more delightful, how much more satisfying is it then for the Christian to draw near and linger and restfully dream and enjoy the spiritual haven of rest and God the Father? We're still there, though, <laughs> Well, Dan, your family knew how to get to Sears. I remember how to get to Sears before it closed. But how does one know to keep themselves in the love of God? How do I do that? Well, look what he says. Jude says, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Build yourself up. 
He's telling them, get to know the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. This is not just some abstract principle that the church as an institution holds to. It's not just a book that you may take off the shelf every now and then and dust off. It's not just some uh, confession that is lying around somewhere. No, this is the radical, it's the vital living word of God that you've been given. So take it up. Keep yourself in the love of God by reading and reminding yourself of God's great love for you. Second, he calls them to pray, to pray in the Holy Spirit. Just as you're to be dependent upon God's word, you must be dependent upon God's spirit and the strength that he provides. Good soldiers that are sent out to contend for the faith know that you can accomplish nothing of your own strength. You need an ongoing supply, a supply of resources for the battle. So Jude is saying that Christians commit yourselves to drawing near and near to God through prayer. Depend on his spirit. Third, he says we're to wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I hope you see what Jude's doing here. I'm sure there's lots of people in that congregation that are tired, maybe confused, Maybe just done listening. Maybe ready to give up on it all. And he's saying, hey, fix your eyes on future hope. He understands that hope is a potent motivator for present action. Knowing the end encourages vigorous action right now. And what is the great end for you, Christian? What is the great end when you reach your final day? Eternal life with Christ in glory. The point Jude is making here is that the hope of a future eternal life with Christ is actually fuel. It gives us zeal to fight for the faith now because my fight is not in vain. I'm fighting for the one who loved me and gave himself for me, the one who will receive me just as he has promised. And then he goes on and says, fulfill your ministry. And he does it this way. He, he basically explains that part of contending for the faith is contending with those who would pervert the faith for their own ends. So as we become more and more intimately aware of the awesome and immense privilege that is ours through Christ, when, when we understand God's word and grow in God's word, we will see that we're called to do more than just endure false teachers. Brother, we'll embrace the truth that we've been placed in our various stations of life. We've been given certain gifts, abilities. We've been called to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And listen, I'm not just talking about false teachers here. Think about how we endure the lost and dying world around us, how we even think, and Jew turns our eyes there. What about the sinners in our midst? What about just people who need Jesus? Aren't we called to do more than just endure them? You've been put where you are so that you can pursue them. You can love them and teach them the truth. Call them to faith and faithfulness. Love them. And listen, it, be honest. Isn't it more comfortable to sit in the chair of judgment? Isn't it more comfortable to just sit around and call out false teaching and false living? Isn't it great to puff ourselves up with knowledge and be able to refute every false argument? 
Isn't that great? They sit around and condemn that song that played on the radio or that guy that was on TV. But Jude takes it up a notch, doesn't he? You want to take up your mantle of Christian ministry? That's a high and holy calling. Look at how he talks about it there toward the end of the letter. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Pursue them. Reminds me of that missionary C.T. Studd. Maybe you know that name. This man had a high education and lots of wealth. He gave it all up to go to distant lands to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. Eventually, Stud died, an old man, fruitful life in Africa. But listen to what he said, the words that are probably most famously attributed to him. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Let that sink in. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Jude gets to the end of his letter, and I think we know his heart in full now. He would have the church to contend and to consider and to commit. He's faithfully called us to be fully engaged in this world and yet still fully invested in heaven. He's called us to be active in battle, yet lost in the wonder of grace. So how does he close? He closes with a beautiful doxology, doesn't he? You see it there in verses 24 and 25. He does what faithful preachers do. After making a call of action, he points them back to the one who supplies the resources to do that. Look what he says. He reminds us that God alone is able to keep us. There's that word again. God keeps us from stumbling. That is healing balm. You can watch many fall headlong into grievous sins like apostasy and autonomy and immorality and we're a heartbeat away from doing the same thing. But it is God who keeps us for Christ. He keeps us from stumbling. That's a glorious thought. Be encouraged. Be encouraged that it is God who keeps you. Jude also reminds us that God alone is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I mean, I just camp out there for the rest of the week, right? We don't think about that enough. We fill our appetites with so many other things. And he's saying, fill your appetite. Fill your appetite, your spiritual appetite, not with the things of the world, but remember the very wondrous thought that God will present you. You'll be presented before his glory. Finally, Jude reminds us to give praise to God. He reminds us to not stop giving praise. And this is what I love to see in Christians. Even when things are really bad, even when things are really hard, even when they can be a crumpled pile on the floor in tears, yet I will praise God. Yet I will give thanks to him. Yet I will remember that he is the one who keeps me in his love. He is the one who will see me through toward the end. A sure guarantee that Christ is active in our lives and in our hearts. 
is that we are filled with praise and filled with wonder at his goodness. And so Jude ends with one of the best applications one could end with. He says, praise. Praise to God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. And then what does he do? He ascribes glory and majesty and dominion and authority that he's had before all time and even now and forevermore. Give all the praise and glory and honor to him. He calls you to it. He supplies you through it. He equips you through it. And he keeps you to the very end for his glory and for your good. Amen and amen.